We actually looked at who are the biggest influences for youth when making decisions about their education and employment. And I guess not surprisingly, the number one, um, the, the most influential um, person within uh, youth, their parents. And we actually then surveyed uh, parents and said, where do you get your most trustworthy career advice from? And so whilst the students said it parents, the most common answer for parents is actually their kids. And so what we're seeing is a bit of a information loop. This is where people get a little bit stuck. Hello, I'm Steve Davis and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research, or NCVER. New research has revealed how young people's post-school pathways are diverse, individualised and complex. It begs the question, is the reliance on ATAR, the Australian Tertiary Admission Rank, as our lens for evaluating educational achievements, too narrowly focused? And if so, what are some of the options for broadening our approach to understanding post-school pathways? To discuss this topic today, I'm joined by Simon Walker, Managing Director, NCVR. Hello, Simon. Hello, Steve. And Will Stubbley, co-founder of Year 13, Australia's largest digital platform for high school leaders. Hi, Will. G'day. How are you going? Simon, I'll start with you because you were in the media recently explaining the findings of the NCVR report, Youth Pathways from School to Work. Can we perhaps start by fleshing out the five pathways that the research uncovered? Yeah, thanks, Steve. And what I'll do is uh, just briefly explain how the research was done. So the research is built upon an annual survey we do called the Longitudinal Survey of Australian Youth, And very briefly, we survey people when they are 16 at school and survey them every year for 10 years until they're 25. And what we're able to measure there is their transitions and their outcomes and their journey, if you like, from 16 to 25. Um, Just in particular on this research, what we do need to acknowledge is that we start with a very representative sample at age 16, but people do drop out of the survey. So what happens at the age 25 is you don't get quite the representative sample you started with. And you'll notice in this in particular that there seems to be a a significantly higher proportion of people in a university pathway uh, than you would otherwise expect. And that's because, in fact, that isn't representative exactly. So I think uh, in rough terms, around 40% of school leavers go into university. Um, It doesn't matter because what the research is really doing is clustering groups of students and cohorts into types and we are looking at their characteristics, their transitions and their outcomes and it's still valid to look at them in those clustering terms but place less emphasis on the numbers. And what were the names you gave to the five pathways that were identified? Well we had the, uh, the big pathway which is the higher education to work and that's the one that traditionally people on an ATAR pathway go straight into university and then get out into the workforce. The early entry to full-time work, and I wouldn't mind explaining this a bit too, is a combination of people that leave school and go immediately into the workforce, but that also includes people who do an apprenticeship, because of course that is work in itself, and in fact, if you look at the um, analysis of that, quite a large proportion of them are actually apprentices, or at least part of their journey was an apprenticeship, because they end up in, uh, in trade occupations. Pathway three is the one where we have a mixture of higher education and vocational education, and I found that quite fascinating. Uh, Pathway four, where there are people who are in and out of the labour market and tenuously attached to it. And pathway five are people that are typically in employment, but on a casualised or part-time basis. 
Right. Well, I wanted to come over to you because I looked at the visualization of this data, the Youth Pathways mm. data, which is online. And one thing that struck me is there seemed to be quite a healthy transition to full employment, uh, which is dubbed as 35 hours per week or more. But mm. some reports tell us that many young adults are in full time casual work. So, from your perspective at year 13, should that be a concern, Will? It- Depends, I guess, how you're looking at it. Um, I think we know that, especially with youth, uh, casual work as well as, I guess, gig work in, in the gig economy is becoming much more prevalent because of the means of being an entry-level role, uh, as well as the flexibility if they're doing some sort of uh, further education or training. And so I guess it depends on the lens you, you're putting on it. In terms of employment, at least, you know, they're looking, um, they, they're gaining some form of employment and the sort of financial benefits that come from it. But we're still seeing a very large gap in terms of um, everyone being able to transition effectively. I think what we're seeing is the majority are actually really struggling with it in one way or another. And there's a lot of evidence comes into um, youth mental health and what is happening in sort of the not only economic but social aspect of that transitional period, but also we're seeing you know, we've got over 580,000 young people that are currently not in further education, employment or training. So we are definitely seeing a difficulty across there. I think the casual work definitely plays um, a uh, part in that. But I guess the lens that I often put onto it is um, what is that actually meaning for the individual, not only just what is the lens we're looking at it in terms of employment outcomes. And uh, I guess what we're saying is, is you know, 68, we, we did a national survey called After the ATAR and uh, we looked at 15 to 21 year olds uh, around the country, which was sort of uh, pretty close uh, matching the distribution of population around Australia. Mm-hmm. And 68% of those young people said that they're struggling with their mental health. And so if we sort of apply that to an employment um, sort of means, what we're seeing is a lot of young people not, uh, even if they are gaining employment, it's actually not enjoying the employment that they're doing or not feeling secure about the uh, form of employment they're in. So. Um, if you look at the casual employment sense, I guess it's not really helping with their, um, with giving them confidence. Um, and that's sort of bleeding into much further down the line issues, that, which depends on how far you want to extrapolate. But, you know, only 22% of, of, um, of people are saying that they're actually happy with their careers and don't want to change. So it depends on where, where we want to start. But, yeah, there's, we're seeing um, some of those smaller issues of that traditional journey, especially when you look at employment and casual jobs, mm. permeating into big issues down the track. While we're talking about this, though, can we delve a little further into some of the other pressing needs and concerns that young people and their families bring to you when they engage with uh, Year 13? And, and, and how do you engage with them? Yeah, well, I guess that sort of goes in line with uh, what we're saying the most. I guess the biggest thing that we see um, young people... Uh, concerned about is a sense of fear of the future and it really comes back to a I guess a bit of insecurity around what their options are and what options available to to them and so this is sort of a pretty consistent thing with I guess what parents are saying as well because I guess the most most common inquiry we get is you know I guess from parents are saying um, you know my son or daughter or, or not um, you know, have no idea what they want to do and they're struggling and they're just lost and all that sort of stuff. And it really comes down to uh, young people not feeling like they've got a base level of knowledge to actually go down something that they intrinsically are motivated by. So 
um, what we're seeing is, is a really lack of um, of help around someone actually identifying what they want to pursue and then understanding the transitional journey of actually getting there. Um, and so that obviously causes um, stress and all that sort of stuff, not only for the kid but also the parent. Mm. I'd like to actually return to the ATAR issue that I mentioned in the introduction because the uh, chair of the government's new review of senior secondary pathways, Professor uh, Peter Shergold, he told the Australian Financial Review that Australia focuses far too strongly on a single measure of achievement, even though getting a job or doing further education is dependent on many characteristics, including non-academic ones. And if I may, uh, in the Lessons of History, which is a, a concise survey of the culture and civilization of humankind that was based on research by Pulitzer Prize winning historians Will and Ariel Durant, they've argued that one of the reasons it's hard to change our minds about things is that our brains as humans get stuck in a mental habit loop, which tends to look at information from a singular point of view, hence our ATAR lens. What is it going to take at a systemic level for us to reinvigorate our approach to youth pathways broader than just that ATAR method. Simon, I'll, I'll throw to you first. Yeah, I'm, I might start by saying that the choices and the availability of different pathways is probably greater than it's ever been. Um, having said that, just because they're available doesn't mean people exercise that choice. And a really good example of that which has occurred over the last 10 years has been some concerted efforts from governments across Australia to increase retention of year 12, but they are given options in the main to stay at school, go into full-time training, or possibly go into work, including an apprenticeship. And yet the behavioural response has been to go back to school and in many cases go into a university pathway straight away. And I'm not sure there's the awareness of the possibilities. I think it's confusing for a lot of people. And of course, where I'm picking up on some of Will's comments, the availability of full-time jobs isn't the same as it was 20 years ago. Um, and I think it's, it's this makes it more difficult and a bit more bewildering for people to make the choices that they can make, because certainly you have got options now that you never had before. Will, what's your comment on this? In terms of actually, I was just thinking what one of our most uh, common inquiries are from youth. And, um, and one of uh, the most common things we get is young people writing in concern that the skills that they have are not being adequately measured by the ATAR. Wow. And it's stressing them out and, and they feel disassociated by the system because the things that they might be good at, whether it's you know, something creative or some sort of skill that they've developed, the ATAR has no way of actually measuring and they feel like they're actually getting a disservice by the current school system because they feel that if it was structured differently, they would actually be a very high achieving or, you know, you know be able to do quite well in whatever field that they're doing, whereas currently they feel like a failure because they don't fit in with that academic um, measurement. So, yeah, definitely agree with Simon in terms of there are more opportunities available to, uh, to people, I guess, more than ever. And it's interesting, again, if I, obviously I'm, I'm just going to focus, I guess, on the younger audience um, and that school leaver sort of transition. And we actually looked at uh, what, who are the biggest influences uh, for youth when making decisions about further education and employment. And I guess not surprisingly, the number one, um, the, the most influential uh, person within uh, youth uh, circle is their parents. And then it's closely followed by sort of some other uh, things like 
um, self-exploration in terms of websites, uh, schools and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of parents, they were by far the most dominant influencer. Um, and what was interesting is we actually then surveyed uh, parents and said, where do you get your most trustworthy career advice from? And so whilst the students said at parents, the most common answer for parents is actually their kids. And so what we're seeing is a bit of a information loop between the child and parent. And I guess this is where there actually goes, where people get a little bit stuck is because if you look at each individual school leaver, their knowledge of what is available is really a microcosm of who they know. So maybe it's their parents, their friends' parents, uh, and what roles and jobs that they might have that they actually have exposure to. And so they're quite limited in terms of what they actually can see is available. And I guess that's probably limiting them quite a lot as well. So then if you just look at the school system, if they the ATAR system is really completely academic um, and I believe is very much geared towards uh, entering university, their views on what is actually available to them and so is very limited. And so if they uh, feel like they don't quite fit within that system or you know within the academic measurements that are currently there or if they fail something or whatever it is, it really stresses them out and really leaves them quite disassociated. And so for that reason alone, I think the ATAR system really needs to be looked at uh, heavily and there needs to be secondary metrics to actually help people that don't quite fit within that, um, that measurement system. Yeah, just to add to that, uh, one of the things, first of all, some universities do have different entrance pathways and so they don't just rely on the ATAR. Um, but... What will probably drive this into the future is, uh, as it's quite a contemporary commentary around the nature of work going forward, is going to require a different set of skills and attributes than we previously had. So people will be looking for entrepreneurial skills, creative skills. They are thought to be the skills of the future. So if you were going to measure someone going into a university and if the universities are going to respond to the requirements of the new workforce by teaching or otherwise encouraging those skills, then you would hopefully expect them to change their entrance requirements <laughs> to adapt to the people who are more capable of going there. Um, so I think some of this might just evolve, uh, but right now we are stuck with a very uh, narrow set of academic measurement uh, to get into university. Yeah, Actually, picking up on what Will said before about parents being the key source of information in, in helping students uh, plot their pathway, are either of you aware of any systems that try to address that by equipping parents with information versus just you know, within an institution uh, and within that institutional realm? Personally, no. Uh, and you would expect most parents to rely on their formative years to be making those assessments. Mm. Um, probably worthwhile pointing out too that where most governments do offer these range of choices for people uh, to stay in school or go into education, uh, training or, or possibly an apprenticeship is that they tend to encourage them into university because they are aspirational for their kids to give them the widest range of opportunities and it's it's deemed to be of a higher status and provide those greater opportunities even though there's plenty of evidence that a lot of those students would be better off taking an alternate choice that's very much a subject that's being discussed in government at the moment, uh, the Prime Minister in particular, and also uh, Minister Cash. So those discussions are going on. In terms of how parents might get that information, do they understand the opportunities? Do they understand the gig economy? Do they understand that the world of work is changing? 
young people are confronted with that because that's a reality right in front of them now. I'm not so convinced that parents are quite as aware. Will, what's your reading of the situation? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with Simon that um, the information uh, that I guess we're quite familiar with and talking about uh, is not reaching the parent level. And, and you know, that's just evident in terms of the general um, perceptions of what is the right pathway to, to success, so to speak, that, that parents are um, wanting the best for their, for their kids. And they, in the whole, do believe that the university pathway um, does lead to things like a higher income and, and whatnot. So um, in terms of, you know, the conversations around national skill shortages and, and the amount of opportunity that is in these alternative pathways, especially in that vocational space, uh, parents are largely unaware. And I think that's where um, basically what we're seeing through, through our research is that there's three key phases in the decision-making process. The first is um, the level of understanding an individual has of a certain career path. So, um, for example, you know, whether um, they know about the uh, national skill shortage and what occupations might be about that. And then it then goes into what we call um, the consideration phase, which is they then start weighing up uh, their options. So it could be university versus uh, vocational pathway, it could be um, you know, going straight into employment versus further education, um, whatever uh, they, they want to do. Um, once they actually come to a decision after that um, consideration phase, the last is what we call process of attainment. And that's where we actually see a lot of young people uh, actually uh, not pursuing the career path that they want to. Because what, they, what we see is happening is they might decide that they, for example, want to do an apprenticeship and can understand that there's good job prospects, understand that there's uh, a demand, in-demand sector and that there's um, the ability to grow over the next you know, five, ten years. But they're still getting um, sort of stopped or, or are unable to have those, those sorts of conversations with their parents or um, other sort of influences. And then they actually end up going back to what is perceived as being the safer option, which is often um, the university pathway. And that's, I guess there's a few different reasons for that. A, because of what the parents or general influencers think is the right pathway, but also what a lot of their friends and, and people that they know are actually doing as well. So um, we definitely, I think it's a, it, it, the information um, about what is happening over the you know, next five, 10 years, because it, realistically it has changed significantly uh, in terms of the job prospects and what's happening in terms of university graduates. Uh, vocational graduate and um, and that sort of information because I think it has happened quite quickly in a way um, is hasn't quite reached the general population you've actually set up beautifully because I wanted to ask Simon about changes that are afoot in the vet for secondary school students uh, space um, can you just perhaps give us a, a quick summary Simon of what the What's happening with the various systems for accommodating this aspect of secondary schooling? Well, I will start by reiterating what I said before. There has been some massive changes to secondary school education over the last 10 years, primarily to give more options and more pathways. It is, as Will's been talking about, the behavioural response that hasn't actually adapted yeah. to fully utilise or fully make best use of those options. What we now have is a review commissioned by the Australian government, as you say, led by Peter Shergold, which, by the by, was the chair of the NCVR board for a number of years. Um, and, and I think fundamentally uh, they're looking at trying to improve 
the information and choices that people can make and it's really what Will's talking about here is how do you how do you make sure people have got the best information to be able to make those choices but also is there any systemic barriers once they do make a choice to being able to follow that pathway and uh, it's a very open-ended discussion uh, and I did and he's only just embarked upon it um, so I'm, I'm kind of hopeful certainly knowing Peter quite well that he'll he'll be digging right into this to see if there is some changes that, that are required. I might add the another initiative is the um, development of the National Careers Institute, which mm. again is is there for providing everybody, not just school leavers, with information about options and careers and the labour market. So that goes to hand in hand with this, I think. I want to end with a couple of uh, questions that will lead us into perhaps some sociological and, and, and philosophical aspects. Do we know the full impact of students doing apprenticeships while they're at school when they're getting paid for that aspect of the apprenticeship? Uh, they're actually bringing some money in whilst they're mixing with their peers at school, uh, albeit as part of their stream. What are we seeing on that front? Uh, well, first of all, there's not very much of it. Right. So out of all, the, there's roughly... Let's say 500,000 secondary school students at any one time, but you only got about 20,000 that might be doing an apprenticeship or a traineeship as part of their school studies. Mm. That said, the outcomes for those people that do start an apprenticeship or even complete a traineeship during their school are absolutely better than, from an employment purpose uh, or from an employment objective than. Uh, you would get through other pathways. Uh, really outstanding results uh, in terms of their outcomes in five, ten years' time. What do you think, Will, when you hear about uh, students doing apprenticeships while they're at uh, secondary school and getting paid for that part of the apprenticeship? I, for one, am a really big advocate for school-based apprenticeships because I think um, the way that it's structured gives them uh, a really big head start to actually uh, be more likely to complete that apprenticeship. And uh, I guess what we, and it's, again, this is a little bit anecdotal and we need to do further research into it, is um, the effect of uh, when they do finish school, things like gap years, things like um, uni holidays and, and all the sort of things that I guess are a little bit forgotten about that have a huge impact on the social aspect of a 18, 19, 20-year-old. And so I'd actually love to see the data of how many, apprentice, how many uh, apprentices do drop out because they want to go travelling or they want to take a gap year and, and the, you know, it's, at the moment it's not very flexible to be able to do that. I know that there's been some conversations and I think there might even be some programs that are actually looking at being more flexible within the apprenticeship structure. But I think there's little things like that that actually it's a, there's some social influences uh, specifically around travel, which or even just, you know, not international travel, but just doing something that is more for themselves. So that could be something as simple as taking a, you know, photography course or, or something like that, um, which is playing a really big impact. And I think if you, if if the apprentice is waiting until they finish year 12 to then start, you know, they're only maybe a year, 18 months before they're starting to really feel that pressure. Whereas if they do start when they're 15, 16, um, they've got two years, maybe two and a half years before their friends start doing those sorts of trips and start feeling that sort of pressure with it. So they're already quite invested and it seems like a more achievable thing to just finish it and then look at those sorts of activities. So um, I think it's a really interesting space and topic which I want to do a little bit more research into and understand better because um, I think there's a few creative things that we could do from a government level all the way down to an employer level that would actually be able to help that process. 
I'd like to just um, reflect on your advocacy of the gap year because uh, I'm listening as a parent and I know when I took my gap year, it turned into a gap decade. And so I'm <laughs> nervous about encouraging my daughters to take a gap year. However, it's turned out okay for me. Do you think, mm. given that mental health uh, factors are looming large, as you mentioned earlier, is there some health stopgap in actually having uh, that yeah. gap year in the midst of that early part of our careers? 100%. And if I look at uh, a a lot of the issues that we're seeing, so, um, you know, the prevalence of the struggles that youth are having throughout that sort of 15 to 21 year old um, age age group, uh, a lot of the stress, anxiety, and a lot of the mental health problems that we're seeing are clearly permeating into societal and economic issues. You know, if you just look at, um, you know, what it's costing um, you know, the Australian economy each year, you know, we're, co- we're spending almost $12 billion annually uh, on welfare job-seeking programs. And if you look at uh, just youth, for example, it's um, expected, I think it's like $11.3 billion in annual GDP if youth unemployment and underemployment was brought in line uh, with the rest of the population. So um, if we look at, and I'm not saying that we're able to completely solve those, those, that amount of spend, but that's quite large numbers that we're seeing. And if we can better uh, equip young people to uh, deal with that transitional period, which is sort of lowering the amount of people that are going into those programs, it's obviously going to be a really beneficial thing. And so what we've looked at is like, what is actually causing um, young people to feel stressed and or disassociate from the system? And what we've seen is it actually boils down to a lack of a sense of purpose and that lack of purpose is then permeating into almost every other aspect of their life. And again, I think that actually goes back to one of the first stats that I said. It's only 22% of, um, of employed people are saying that they're happy and don't want to change their, their job. So that's where we see a bit of a role of, of a gap year. And I think there's way more things that we could do at the school level to, to better mm. fix that problem. But if you just look at the gap year, year um, sort of um, option, it is a way for young people to identify the, uh, what they are intrinsically motivated by, what actually does get them out of bed, what they do want to do. And I think that is such a strong thing that we as a society should be pushing further is that don't necessarily rush or at least try and figure out what gets you going before going into so- something that might go, da- you know, go down a pathway that you're fundamentally not going to enjoy. And I think... There's nothing wrong with just giving things a go, but if we can put a bigger focus on helping young people understand themselves and understand a sense of purpose, we can then help them in so many other facets. And I guess that's the what I often say if I'm talking to a parent or something about a gap year is going, if they don't know what they want to do and they want to go a gap year, or even if they want to do, know what they want to do and they want to go on a gap year, it's one of the best things that they can do because they, they, it's a mechanism for them turning from a child to an adult and it gives them time to actually figure out for themselves what they might be wanting to do in, uh, with their future. So, yep. And then on top of that, there's a whole bunch of studies around how beneficial a gap year actually is for further education. But I like to focus on more of the social aspect. <laughs> so the very last question, and I know there's no, or there's li- unlikely to be any longitudinal study to refer to here. So I'm asking you both to postulate, when do you think we'll see what the outcomes are of an early introduction to workplace values and workplace mindsets during the schooling system, such as doing uh, vocational training, uh, in someone's ongoing career as they mature, that early introduction to thinking 
within a workplace mindset versus just the school academic mindset, what do we think the fruits of this will be looking decades into that person's future? Well, I can answer some of that already oh. without speculating because we do have some studies, the same studies, the Longitudinal Survey of Australian Youth, um, which we've applied through the lens of those students that did vocational education in school and those that didn't. Now, a lot do, so even people who are going to university on an ATAR pathway may still um, participate in a VET subject just out of pure interest. Mm -hmm. But if you look at those that do versus those that don't, broadly speaking, the employment outcomes are earlier and better um, and more likely to be full-time, and for those full-time people, more likely to be permanent, at least within about... uh, at the age of about 22, so we did a slightly different cohort here. <laughs> in the longer term, not so sure, but at least in that early youth period, it, people who who do a VET subject are, are more likely to be in employment and more sustained deployment uh, at an age of 22. Will, what's your thoughts about what the future might be like from that early introduction to that different mindset? The amount of technology that's coming into the um, education space is really, really exciting. And I think... Um, some of the uh, companies and projects and, and uh, systems that I've seen that are they're simply designed to enhance the learning experience at high schools um, open up a myriad of opportunities for students to have a better experience and I think that's where we're going to see if we can open up the capacity for teachers through using um, you know better technology I think that's when we're going to see um, some of those you know different uh, methods being more widely introduced because you know, I, I do think it's, it's hard for teachers. They've got a lot of kids to look after and um, you know, there's a lot going on. So I think once we can help them do their, you know, help them um, do their job and get, like, more effectively and, and help them um, have more time to be able to deal with each student individual basis, I think you'll see more of that. Great note to finish on. Uh, Will Stubley from Year 13, thank you very much. Cool, thank you very much. And Simon from NCVO, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments with funding provided through the Australian Government, Department of Employment, Skills, Small and Family Business. For more information, please visit ncver.edu.au.